But we are starting off talking about the very latest when it comes to the Hockey Canada sex assault scandal. And as you know, we have heard from the interim chair and director, Andrea Skinner, announcing October 8th that she has resigned from her duties effective immediately. That statement put out on the Hockey Canada website. We then also heard from Canada's Minister of Sport saying Hockey Canada must continue to transition to a new leadership team, Pascal. Saint-Ange making those comments just one day after the resignation came from Andrea Skinner. Well, joining us on the line to talk a bit more about this now is Dr. Anne Pegoraro, Lang Chair in Sport Management and the Director of the International Institute for Sport Business and Leadership at the University of Guelph. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on. What is your response to hearing about the resignation of Andrea Skinner? Well, I think that... Uh, you know, uh, two things. I think we're starting maybe to see some change. Um, we saw the first chair resign, and now the interim chair has stepped down. So I think that's uh, that's positive that we're seeing some individuals see the need for change. And then secondly, I think it's such an abrupt um, change for her after her uh, testimony and in, in, in the hearings uh, to defend and, and uh, grade the leadership of Hockey Canada as, as uh, an A. Um, and now she's kind of done, um, you know, almost a 180 and is stepping aside. Were you surprised at all by that? Because I know, and, and that, that stuck out as well, it seemed like, like an, a completely different tone from her testimony to then this message put on the, the Hockey Canada website announcing her resignation. Yeah, I think it was a bit surprising given how staunch her defense of Hockey Canada and of their position on all of this was last just last week and, and a few short days later. Um, now we get this message on Hockey Canada's uh, website saying that she's stepping aside. Um, so hopefully uh, I, I see it as a positive uh, that, you know, that she saw that she couldn't make the change and that hopefully someone else can. And the wording of it I found interesting as well in that it's not a very lengthy statement, but she talks about joining in 2020 as a volunteer, uh, having experience playing, coaching and officiating at the grassroots and elite levels. She talks, she says, given recent events, it no longer makes sense for me to continue to volunteer my time as interim chair and director. Uh, Despite recent challenges, she's gratified to have had the opportunity. It is a lot about her, but there's not really a sense, there's not uh, any kind of uh, apologetic tone to this or any even hint of an admission of perhaps a misstep? No, and I think that's been in all of the Hockey Canada communication since this has sort of began. We haven't really seen um, any sort of uh, real apologies or any sort of um, taking uh, taking onus on themselves for how this is all unfolding. So I guess it's in keeping with what we've seen from communications from Hockey Canada in the past few months. So maybe not overly surprising uh, that there's not a lot of substance about the actual Hockey Canada issues and more about herself and her involvement. So where do you think we go from here as far as, again, we're hearing from Canada's Minister of Sports saying that that the transition to a new leadership team must continue. Uh, certainly there has been a lot of discussion over Hockey Canada President Scott Smith. Like you mentioned, that was the individual that Andrea Skinner said she would give a, an A grade given the difficult circumstances. But there he is still there. Yeah, and I mean it's 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 uh, it, it's coming from all sides, right? We've seen uh, the prime minister, we've seen the sport minister, we've seen their member organizations, which are provincial hockey federations, now uh, indicating that they don't have confidence in the leadership in Hockey Canada. 
We're seeing it potentially put the World Juniors uh, this coming uh, winter in jeopardy. And we're seeing sponsors pull away. So all of the indications from all the major stakeholders that are a part of Hockey Canada have been they don't have confidence in the current leadership. And that includes him, Scott Smith, and he's still there. How can an organization like this, do you even think, not only the way that it looks, seeing, like you mentioned, the sponsors pulling out and saying, we're not going to take part in this. Some saying we're we're done, others saying we we may come back if there are changes. How does an organization even continue to function and do so with, with any confidence, given the number of sponsors that have pulled out? It's, it's a difficult situation for them. I mean, it's it's a big part of their revenue. It's probably about 40, 45% of their revenue comes from these sponsors. And so when you don't have the funding, making change will even be harder, right? Um, and I think as this organization, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I would have thought we're salvageable. Now I'm starting to teeter on the side of, 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 I think what the prime minister said is, do we need a new organization? Because the culture and the decision-making is so entrenched in this one. Uh, so it is a difficult road for them to start building back for sure. And what kind of impact then do you think it would have? And I, I guess it's one thing to, if you, if you were just to dismantle Hockey Canada and go along that route saying, let's start from scratch and bring in a whole new entity. But how do you do that? And, and then do you make decisions on, on who specifically will be there? Is it people with a hockey background? Is it somebody maybe without a hockey background that brings something else to the table? I think we've let, um, you know, hockey be governed by a very insular group for a really long time. So I do think we need people from outside the hockey community uh, who, you know, who have um, the well-meaning of building uh, the right organization with uh, ethical decision-making. So, yes, outside the game. And I think we've got some good leaders that are still inside the game, inside Canada, that would like to make the change. You know, we hear names being bandied about. And some of those names are, are people that... Um, for the most part, have been leaders in trying to make change in the game. Uh, so I think the board needs to be more more diverse, and I think the leadership team does as well. And and just to do that as well, then do you think then is there the possibility you could keep Hockey Canada and if you did a complete uh, or tried to to take out those who, who were in those positions when these allegations first surfaced who who really show a history of not doing a whole lot as far as handling these things could you could you if you were able to get rid of that portion of hockey canada could you keep hockey canada as the organization as long as it was perhaps revamped and and, and done in a different way i think it's salvageable i, I you know i think that uh, it's it's a lot of work to to uh, rebuild it, but it's just as much work to build something new, right? And I do think we have people who want to have a voice. We've heard from the women's team, arguably one of our most successful national teams. They want a voice at the table that they haven't had so far. Um, you know, we worry about them and, and the para teams in the middle of this, and there's athletes that I think need to be at the tables when these decisions are being made as well that have been a part of the system, have seen it unfold, and perhaps have never been listened to. So uh, it, it's possible, but it's going to take um, some immediate change and some hard work. My guest is Dr. Anne Pegararo, Lang Chair in Sport Management, also the Director of the International Institute for Sport Business and Leadership at the University of Guelph. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to, to ask you as well, we've been talking so much about Hockey Canada, the allegations that we now know about and the action or lack of action from that body. What about sports in general as we're starting to hear from other sporting groups that, hey, wait a second, that that perhaps there have been toxic environments in those groups as well. Is it something do you think we need to look at beyond Hockey Canada? 
Yeah, I think we're starting to see it sort of become a, a little bit of a tidal wave inside of our sports sector in Canada. We've heard from Gymnastics Canada and, and Bobsled and Skeleton, um, Canada Soccer. You know, it's really kind of all coming to light and being widespread. So I do think we see a sector that's uh, a bit in crisis and, and we need to pay attention to what's happening inside sport in Canada. And what is it about sport, do you think, specifically where we are seeing this number? And these are not all sexual assault or sexual abuse allegations, but again, the the mistreatment of some athletes, toxic environments. What is it about sport, do you think, that leads to this number of allegations? I think there's a couple of factors. I think there's um, there's unique power relationships in sport between coaches and athletes and um, administrators on deciding who makes teams and who doesn't and who gets to move forward in their sport. So there's there's power imbalances that, that lead to that. I think secondly, we've built um, a mentality that we all love to watch our athletes win medals and we've got a system that funds organizations based on winning. And when winning is the ultimate goal that, that keeps you sustainable as an administrator, Odds are you sometimes make decisions that aren't in the best interest of athletes or, or uh, even coaches because you need to actually win and get money. So I think we have a, um, a need to have a shift in the mindset about how we fund sport and move away from just funding winning and take a hard look at the power relationships that exist. And so is it because hockey is such a prominent sport and is something that I think uh, nothing against the other sports, but it does tend to get a lot of a lot more attention, even if we're just talking about uh, sponsorships and viewerships. So is it because hockey is so prominent that perhaps that's the one we're looking at first? Yeah, I think that, we, you know, we, we can't deny the fact of, of the role of hockey in Canadian culture and, and, and it being, you know, the national game and how we all stop our families and at Christmas time and watch this uh, World Junior Championships and cheer on. So it's ingrained in who we are, you know, as Canadians. And so I do think it gets more attention. I think second to that, it's dragged on and it's not been, you know, the, the constant lack of, of real transparent decision making has kept it in the limelight for sure. Do you think that it would have been different? So so say Scott Smith had resigned. Was there the possibility that if, if he had done that, would we just have swept it under the rug and said, OK, great, the president resigned. That's the outcome we were looking for. And maybe some of those deeper issues would never have been looked at? It's possible. It's possible that, uh, you know, that would have been a you know, quick fix in terms of we changed our leadership, some of our boards resigning or they're not running again. You know, we're making this change and, and, and it would maybe have disappeared from the scrutiny of the public. And with that um, would come less attention to how they're really actually making change or not. So perhaps one of the good outcomes would be is that the, their approach to this dragging it out and, and um, not making change is, is actually maybe hopefully going to have us focus on the real root issues and make that change. And when we look at how kind of this all started with Hockey Canada, with this, the alleged group sexual assaults uh, of uh, involving members of the, the men's national junior team, uh, how it was paid out, the fact that this fund was being used, the registration fees, uh, parts of those were being put into this fund. Do you think the reaction has been, has been enough to that, to, to these allegations and to what has been happening? I think from Hockey Canada, they think it's too much. I think, I think from the other side of, you know, parents and trust in this system that, uh, 
has been broken. And I and I think that, um, you know, it needs to really uh, have more attention put on it. We need more of a spotlight about how, how did this happen? How can we make changes that we, we can put public trust back into our sports system so that every parent can feel comfortable putting their child into sport and that where their money goes when they're paying it and ultimately that they're in a safe, welcoming um, and, you know, inclusive sport environment. Uh, because I, every time we talk about this, and I'm sure even in the past 20 minutes, uh, we do get calls uh, to our buzz line from people saying, why are why are people making such a big deal about this? This was uh, an allegation. There were not criminal charges filed in this. And, and I think part of that, too, is people want to love hockey, and it would be easier mm-hmm. to kind of push this aside and not give it this much attention. But how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think we all want to love hockey, and, and I think... M- Many of us have, you know, uh, fallen out of love with it lately, and so we'd like to love it again. And, and I think that comes with, with having confidence uh, and trust in the organization that governs the game. And so while it's one incident, I think we're really talking about decision-making, about use of funds, about transparency, and really how overall the, the game is governed in our, in our country. What what do you anticipate then, and not to, to look into a crystal ball, but when we hear more from the Prime Minister, from the Minister in charge of sports, saying more needs to be done as far as restoring trust in Hockey Canada, uh, like you said, to perhaps replacing it with something else, what do you think the next logical step might be? Well, uh, you know, I would hope the logical next step might be from Hockey Canada's perspective is that, um, you know, that, that Scott Smith would step aside and we'd start to see the change internally and inside the organization. I think that would be a, a good first step. Uh, I think constituting a board that uh, represents Canada and Canadians is another step to go um, with voices both from inside the game and outside the game. On a general level, I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that the sport minister is thinking that we need to take a look at a, uh, a national standard system for sport in Canada, that um, we can make sure that good governance principles, that good coaching, that inclusive, safe environments are built and that, you know, every parent can sort of look up um, their local club and know how they're doing. It's, you know, sort of that, uh, like the reviews we do when we try to buy a car or a, a product off of a website, we're always reading other consumers' reviews. We should have something like that in sport as well. Right. I'm, I'm rather than, say, taking a leap of faith and, and just believing and, and thinking that even if they're uh, in charge of policing themselves, for lack of a better word, that they're doing a good job of it? That's right. And so if there's a standard that would say, you know, this is what this is what the, the environment should their child goes to a practice. This is what the coach should have in terms of coaching education or knowledge. And this is how the interaction should happen because we need that education and we need to know that organizations are doing it because right now we've left sports to, as you say, police themselves and many aren't doing a good job of it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for talking more about this. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having the discussion. Well, with the civic election not too, too far away, actually happening next weekend, a lot of people are thinking about crime, thinking about safety in their neighbourhood. And this was something that was put out by uh, Howard Chow, Deputy Chief Howard Chow with the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, he uh, tweeted out what he, well, or what officers experienced in Vancouver this past weekend, saying uh, there were more than 1,200 calls that came in to Vancouver Police 
and my computer screen has just gone a little wonky. It was, uh, so I can go by memory. It was more than 1,200 calls. It uh, was several, here we go, 145 priority one calls, 23 weapons calls, 34 assaults in progress, six people were stabbed, one person was shot with a crossbow, and police also responded to multiple protests. So this is in a 40-hour period over the span of the weekend. We wanted to talk a little bit more about that. So joining us now is retired Sergeant Toby Hinton, also co-founder of the Odd Squad Productions. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. My, uh, excuse me. My pleasure uh, and happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, same to, to you as well. When you hear those numbers and and Deputy Chief Chow actually put out kind of a, a screen grab of the calls that were coming in as well, uh, as uh, when you wear your, your sergeant hat, your police sergeant hat, and you hear those numbers, what goes through your mind? Well, the spike in uh, violent crime is uh, driven by a lot to do with the environment as well, too. The downtown east side has gotten significantly worse uh, since I was there. And I did spend a fair bit of time there. I spent 17 years as a beat cop and eight years as a sergeant in the downtown east side. And uh, I can um, assure you that it, it was not as difficult to police than as it is now. And, and a lot of our prevention work came out of uh, came out of a desire to try to make things better uh, down there. So uh, it, it's frustrating. The police officers are experiencing higher levels of uh, violence against uh, them uh, in doing their jobs. And uh, it, it's a 24-hour cycle right now um, that, uh, uh, that uh, doesn't give one much breathing room to reach out, connect to community-based initiatives and, and project-based policing. It's, it's, um, the, these guys are going to be uh, heavy on the responsive side. Right. So, so what do you think has changed or what are the main things that have changed, say, in the past 20 years? Uh, well, I mean, your drug trends changed in the early 90s. Uh, that's when crack cocaine came in, and we started seeing a difference in the population in terms of it going late night and running uh, 24 hours and uh, more psychotic-based uh, uh, activity and, and mental health uh, issues uh, developing out of uh, that pattern of drug use. Uh, the, there's been a shift uh, with uh, the, uh, the numbers of homeless uh, individuals. There's also been a heavy adoption of harm reduction-based policies for housing, for drug supply and drug use and drug services. And uh, as a result of that, Vancouver has also become a bit of a West Coast destination for individuals so your uh, transient population increases uh, there's issues related to structure and uh, regulation and how uh, some of the single room occupancy housing units are run down there what you see on the street is often mirrored sometimes worse inside the sros which is a unique um, uh, a unique housing situation for um uh, for Canadian cities, Vancouver has a large pool of single-room occupancy um, uh, dwelling units, and a lot of them, in my opinion, aren't managed properly. And uh, 
just challenge yourself, uh, Jill, and ask yourself when the last time you heard a civic politician, a provincial politician, or a health bureaucrat uh, mention the word prevention. And uh, we hear a lot about safe supply. We hear a lot about, um, you, you know, uh, looking after um, uh, seriously addicted people with compassion. But the two words that I listen for and I very rarely hear, well, the one primarily is prevention, the second one is treatment. So there's, uh, there's a lack of focus uh, in my mind on um, making uh, conditions better for people down there. And then, of course, we, we have, uh, you know, COVID, which has been hard on everybody. It hasn't helped uh, the population. Uh, and when you talk about prevention, I think that's an interesting point because we even look at at the police force and police officers and the phrase that often gets put out is we can't arrest our way out of this. But you're right. I think there tends to be the the idea that looking at, to, at police only as responsive, not part of um, not part of prevention. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, you don't have to go far to find prevention initiatives inside the department. I mean, we started because we thought the drug problem um, was serious enough to warrant more education and more awareness for younger people. And it pales in comparison to how bad it is now. But that was our motivation. But you have the VPD cadets, you have... Uh, previously, uh, the school liaison officers with connections to youth, uh, you have Indigenous uh, uh, cadet program, you have new kids uh, programs, you have work going on inside the police department that has prevention written all over it. And remember, these are investments that are uh, like years, years and years in the making, and, and they, they're delivered at times when Schools have cut back on additional programs, after-school programs for sports and activities aren't there. And if you want your kid in a sport program nowadays and to excel at it, you better have a lot of money if it's hockey or if it's soccer because they have to be training all the time at elite performance level and recreational activities have taken, uh, you know, uh, back step uh, in terms of their accessibility for kids. So these are things like when we talk about stranger assaults, you know, you're probably going to see primarily that it's a little bit of an older demographic uh, that's uh, drug using combined with mental health issues that that are involved in a lot of these stranger assaults. But that they they didn't just materialize from uh, uh, nowhere. This is, you know, these problems develop over time. And we have to make a concerted effort to put some money back in and support families who need them, support kids who don't have opportunities, look after the kid with two left feet that might not be the sports superstar, help connect kids with trades and education. So that that's the long-term game. But I, I don't hear any civic politicians in Vancouver at least talking about that. Uh, no, even though, uh, I mean, the irony there is so much of what we're talking about is crime, is safety, is uh, increased crime, or at least the perception that increased. Uh, like you said, if you go back 20 years, it was a much different place. Even if you were uncomfortable, perhaps, in some parts of downtown Vancouver, you didn't fear that somebody was going to step out and stab you or attack you with a machete. Whereas now we hear about those, unfortunately, we hear about those exact things happening almost on a regular basis. 
We've created a toxic, unhealthy, uh, and unsafe environment uh, in the downtown east side. And that uh, is a failed social experiment, in my opinion, that is expanding out. And you're going to see more of it in Yelton. You're going to see more of it on Granville. You're going to see more of it in District 1, which is the west end of Vancouver. If uh, there isn't a concerted effort to work collectively to provide some support for the people who need it, uh, the report by uh, retired Chief Doug Lepard and Amanda Butler on some of the solutions and opportunities uh, for the seriously mentally ill should be looked at. Uh, we need to plow some money into youth programs and we need to clean up uh, some of the living conditions down there uh, as well, too. This unregulated, unstructured, anything goes, we'll meet you where you're at, is creating a dystopian city centre. All right. Well, retired Sergeant Toby Hinton, thank you so much for joining us today and for talking about this. I appreciate you making the time for us on this Thanksgiving Monday. Thank you, uh, Joe, and uh, enjoy your day. We are going to take a little bit of time now to talk fashion and specifically looking at a Vancouver-born fashion company. You've likely seen the stores Aritzia. If you've ever seen that long lineup around the warehouse, that is the annual Aritzia sale and people camp out. That's not even an exaggeration. People often camp out and spend hours to get in and take in some of the deals. So how has this store been able to endure the test of time, stay relevant, and even get to what some describe as a cult-like status? To talk more about that, I am joined by Lisa Amlani, who is principal and co-founder of Retail Strategy Group. But Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. When we look at the history of Aritzia and how it's managed to stay so relevant and so popular, what is it about Aritzia that that it's been able to do this? You know, I'll say that Aritzia definitely has the secret sauce down pat, uh, relevant product assortment, product upsets, brand ambassadors, and an exceptional customer experience. And to top it off, I'd say there's not much competition in that price price point across uh, generations of female shoppers. Which you would think that there would be other stores or designers that might look at that and say, hmm, here's what's missing is competition in that price point and try and take away some of Aritzia's clientele, but it doesn't seem like that's happened. No, I don't think so. And I think that because the product-obsessed brand ambassadors are also customers, I think it really brings um, everything full circle for Aritzia. And that shopping experience in some stores, even paired with champagne and a personal stylist that, you know, has you on speed dial. I think that customers really just, um, they're obsessed with Aritzia and, and vice versa. And when you talk about that price point, how would you describe the price point at Aritzia? I would say it's, um, it's not quite aspirational, but it's definitely attainable for customers. So whether it's, um, you know, targeted towards uh, university and college students, but also throughout a female, you know, in her career, she's able to shop there without feeling guilty. You know, I mean, going to Nordstrom or the Bay or even Saks, I think that there is, um, you know, you may buy one suit a season, but with Aritzia, you'll not only buy your workwear, but you'll buy your weekend wear and even your workout clothes. 
And, and interesting. So does it kind of focus on that, that college student or maybe the young professional or is there an age span that is more, I guess, more suited to shopping there? I would say that Aritzia definitely speaks to all uh, generations, from my mother to my younger sister um, to her daughter. So I would say that Aritzia, because a lot of their product assortment is timeless, with you know a little bit of uh, fashion and trend, I'd say that that's how they're capturing their customers. You look at you know TikTok, Gen Gen Z is definitely interested in Aritzia, and they have a following, a cult following, as you said. But also, you know, I'll shop there myself. I think that they they really understand not only who their customer is, but they're capturing insights to help drive some of that product assortment. So they're continuously closing that feedback loop and serving the customer with the right product at the right time. And how much of an influence are or can celebrities be as far as I know a lot of celebrities uh, wear Aritzia clothing, uh, people notice that and uh, people will post about that. How much does that play into it as far as then other people also wanting what they might see a celebrity wearing? I'd say that that celebrity loving culture is still very relevant today. Um, you know, it's it's not in the Paris Hilton days, but I think that right now, uh, when celebrities are wearing Aritzia, it's something that's attainable for people. So they can actually relate to a celebrity uh, more so than they've ever had before. Because there's, there's a lot of luxury that, you know, we can't afford or, you know, the, the younger generation can't tap into. But um, with Aritzia, it's actually um, accessible. Hmm. And when you describe the clothing, when you, when you talk about things kind of being timeless or that you can buy your what you might wear to work, what you might wear to a party, maybe there's some crossover there, your workout gear. Is it that they want the pieces to be timeless? And so you buy something from Aritzia and you can wear it for a few years. You don't have to replace it every season. Or how do they kind of deal with that? I would say yes. Um, and what they'll do is they'll add colors every every season. So if you know something works on you, you know that as a consumer that they're going to bring it back because it's one of their timeless pieces. So you can continue to shop the the collection every single year, knowing that the product will last and it will it will still fit. So there's durability there, but there's also longevity um, with with saying the pieces are timeless. And when you look at a product assortment, it should there should be a good balance between. Uh, core basics and, of course, fashion and trend. And I think that Aritzia definitely has that um, that assortment uh, allocation down very, very well. And what about when we look at things like quality? And I, I remember it wasn't t- too, too long ago, a few years ago now, when Lululemon, the quality of some of their products was far less than what very uh, committed clientele was used to. And people complained and people went uh, to social media and said, this is not the same as what we used to see. And there was a bit of pushback. What about uh, Aritzia as far as quality? And do people then continue getting what they expect? Yeah, I would say I would say there, there haven't been many issues with quality that I've seen um, or heard about in my retail circles, but I definitely remember that Lululemon incident. And um, it's something that, you know, Lululemon doesn't really like to talk about, but it's something that happened and they listened to their customer. And I think now more than ever, brands and retailers are inclined to listen to their consumers and their shoppers and, again, close that feedback loop so that they'll keep 
uh, the customers happy and keep them coming back. Uh, I think what Aritzia does really well, and including, you know, their expansion of the AOK Cafe, it's getting the shopper to spend more time in the store. And the more they do that, the more they're going to find things that they haven't seen before. And and that's why Aritzia does something very well that other retailers and brands don't do, which is um, a very large product assortment. Uh, that's something you won't find across the board. And so how did they manage then, as far as when you talk about bringing customers in and, and getting them to spend more time in the store, when when the grips of the pandemic had places closed and nobody was going out, how did they manage to weather that? I think they, they were very smart. They had invested in digital transformation prior to the pandemic. And their their digital platform across social uh, commerce, as well as e-com, I think they did a very, very good job in not only fast shipping, which is something that uh, consumers are very used to because of obviously Amazon Prime, uh, but they also have uh, really great feedback and live chat on, on their platform. And I think that's what kept customers engaged and kept them shopping. Also, their product assortment was relevant to the time of lockdown. Uh, folks were wearing fleece. They were wearing uh, comfort clothing and and sweaters and cashmere and leggings. And those are all things that did very well in Aritzia's product assortment. Yeah, there was a time, I recall, to walking uh, on Granville Street in the height of the pandemic. Everything in the store windows was stretchy. There was not one article of clothing yeah. that, that was fitted or had buttons. It was all it was all stretchy, and there was a reason for that. Um, what about expansion? We mentioned Aritzia is a Vancouver-born company. Have they had the same kind of success outside Vancouver, outside of Canada? Yeah, I would say the U.S. especially. I was in a uh, Hudson Yard store a few weeks ago, and uh, it was busy. And Hudson Yard has not been busy <laughs> since uh, the pandemic. Uh, I would say that Aritzia definitely has a cult following. And because their product assortment is relevant, they're able to shift into consumer trends quite quickly. Uh, and that is really part of, their, um, part of their success. And that's why when you were shopping during the lockdown or walking you know, the street, you would see that their store windows were did have relevant product assortment that you wanted to buy. Um, I definitely bought into it. So it spoke <laughs> to me as a consumer. Um, you know, they, they can take my money. <laughs> but um, I would say that they're, they're very smart because they do listen to their consumer. And I think that many brands and retailers can learn from Aritzia's success in how they leverage consumer insights, but also talk to their consumers in store. They trust their brand ambassadors and, Uh, So do the consumers. So I think that really gives them, um, you know, just just a successful um, story that other retailers and brands can absolutely learn from. Uh, and interesting too, I was uh, looking at this and, and not everybody maybe is in the market for say vegan leather pants, but they know they can get them there, but you probably be able to get something else. If that wasn't your thing, you would find something else. Exactly. And I will tell you, I have those in three colors, um, mostly because I had one from a few years ago. And, you know, when they bring it back and there's a new hot color of the season that you want to get into, um, you're able to bring uh, get into a style that you already know fits you and is already proven. And I think that's where Aritzia does um, such a great job with building on their successful product assortment, is that they will add new colors. And I love the fact that um, you know, they still fit, <laughs> you know, even post-pandemic. <laughs>
That is, that is something that uh, we all kind of like. The uh, you hold your breath and hope that things still fit when you go to put them on uh, again. Uh, Lisa, let's leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us for talking more about this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, it is that time of year again. People are growing giant pumpkins. There are some secrets out there. I know people don't want to share how you get the heaviest pumpkin. And there are some serious competitions to have that big pumpkin. Well, this past weekend, there was the 2022 contest, one of many. This one took place at the Krausberry Farms in Langley, and it saw some pretty big pumpkins. So let's find out exactly what we're dealing with here. Jeff Peltier joins us now, competitor, also a co-organizer of BC's Heaviest Pumpkin Way Off competition. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you bet. Thanks so much, Joe. This must be a very exciting time of year for you. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to, to to see all that hard work uh, come to fruition. Pardon the pun, uh, <laughs> but that's the that's the toughest part is actually getting a pumpkin to the competition. Uh, you know, you can you can grow all year, but you're constantly fighting the elements and critters and whatnot, and then then you have to actually manage to get these large fruits to the competition. Uh, and that that actually can hold some people back. We did have a few growers this year that uh, couldn't figure out how to get 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 it out of their yard and to the competition. Well, how do you? Because even if you were able to get it into a truck, it kind of seems like you might need a winch and or a small army. There's a few different ways. Uh, there's a tripod method where you use uh, basically four by four. Uh, pieces of wood and you set up a tripod with with basically an engine hoist and you can lift it up and then you can uh get it onto a flatbed i actually end up having to get a crane into my yard so uh phil's crane service uh he's uh very adept at moving these large fruits so um and then uh, some people will actually uh use what's called a pumpkin lifting tarp so it's a special tarp that's rated for pumpkins up to about 800 pounds you just need to have a nice army of people that are going to help you lift it. <laughs> I guess so. So sorry, you actually hire a guy with a crane to come to your yard That's and help correct. you. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been doing that? Uh, I've been doing it since 2015. Okay. And and to even get to that point, though, and not that uh, I want you to share your, your secrets, if you have secrets, like you said, you're dealing with the elements this year. We had a pretty delayed start of the warmer weather. How challenging was it this year to grow a giant pumpkin? Yeah, that was the challenging part. Uh, spring definitely threw us a curveball and all the, you know, kind of formative stages of the plant that you really want to make sure you're starting a nice, healthy plant. Uh, there were several people that right from the get-go that that posed to be a big challenge. Um, but then if you could make it past that point and once summer finally arrived, um, then you were kind of in the clear, which was great. But the secrets really, there's, there's no big secret. Um, good, healthy soil and great seed genetics. Those are the two things that will really help you um, grow a big one. I was going to ask you, so the seed, do you, do you have a certain seed that you use every year or the variety and that, that plays a role? Uh, well, when, uh, so Dave Chan of Richmond, he, he broke the BC record last year and, uh, he, he, uh, he's been, I think he's unlocked the secret cause he, he, he broke the record by almost 400 pounds last year. And, uh, knowing that, uh, I have a smaller patch in North Vancouver, which, uh, is 
Uh, I decided this year that I knew I probably wasn't going to compete for the largest, so I wanted to, to grow a pretty pumpkin. So I went for seeds that are known for really orange genetics. And uh, lo and behold, it resulted in uh, this year's Howard Dill, which is the prettiest pumpkin award, named for the gentleman from uh, Windsor, Nova Scotia, who really started the whole Atlantic giant pumpkin craze. Wow. And when you were growing it then, so I I think I love that strategy. So Dave Chan has figured it out because so he's won it two years in a row now. And and the the, the second runner up or first runner up doesn't even come close to the size of that pumpkin. So you changed (laughs) strategy, went for the prettiest. As your pumpkin was growing, did you get a sense that, yes, this is going to be a very pretty pumpkin? Well, strangely enough, it it started off with kind of an awkward shape. Um, I knew the genetics would be there for the orange color, so I just kept my fingers crossed that it would fill in. And sure enough, it really did, and, and it, it it actually ends up being so. The Howard Dill um, sort of parameters: it has to be over five hundred pounds, good color, and good shape. And uh, it was funny when when the truck that was carrying the pumpkin arrived on site. Everyone. Everyone said, "Oh, there's our Howard Dill winner." <laughs> so it was, it was pretty, pretty uh, uh, obvious right from the get-go. So wow! And when good shape, so does that mean it has to be round as as round as can be, or does shouldn't that's have right. any kind of knobs or anything on it? Yeah, that's right. Nice classic pumpkin shape. So how do you take care of it? I'm imagining people bringing out the sleeping bags and sleeping in the pumpkin patch to to keep an eye <laughs> on it and to make sure it turns out okay. Yeah, so um, for me, um, oh, and actually many growers, uh, the, the main thing is to try and keep it shielded, the fruit itself shielded but from the sun. So uh, most growers, you'll see them covering them with either a white sheet or a white blanket. Um, and the reason you do that is that they grow such a rapid uh, rate that you want to try and keep the rind, the skin of the pumpkin, as supple as possible so it can grow that quickly. Otherwise, if the rind starts to ripen in the direct sunlight, it will harden, and then with that growth rate, it will cause the pumpkin to split. Um, and this year, the world record for a single-day gain was broken. It was a grower in Pennsylvania, and his pumpkin did 89 pounds in the span of one day. Yikes! That's that's hard to believe. <laughs> well, I mean, you figure these uh, plants go in the ground usually around uh, May first, and you're pollinating the fruit somewhere around July first. So from July first to October first, uh, that's your growth period. And if it's over two thousand pounds, you're looking at forty to fifty pounds a day for the better part of two weeks in its maximum growth period. Hmm. That's uh, that is something uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating to watch. I mean, you leave for work in the morning and you come home to a completely different plant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm imagining. I don't even recognize you anymore. What's happened to you? <laughs> well, I mean, you think if it does if it does over fifty pounds in one day, that's two pounds an hour, right? So you can literally watch it grow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's uh, I'm I'm guessing there are people that that do that for sure. Um so so now that you've won this award for the prettiest pumpkin, uh, do you keep entering competitions? Do you try and outdo yourself in the years to come or where do you go from here? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we've had so many records broken this year. Uh, the Canadian record was actually broken just a couple of weeks ago by uh, Don Cruz from uh, Lloydminster, Alberta. And the previous record was just under 2,000 pounds, and his was 2,537 pounds. 
Um, so he, he actually grows in a greenhouse, which is a, is a, a bit of a subject of discussion for a lot of growers. They, there's a, a discussion whether or not there should be two different categories, one for people who grow in a greenhouse and one for um, people who grow outdoors. Um, the whole uh, discussion is moderated by, there's actually a governing body that um, judges all or makes the rules for all the competitions, and it's called the Great Pumpkin Commonwealth. And uh, all they care about is how heavy it is, what what hits the scale. That's their that's their main objective. But for me, um, there's all there. So the GPC, which I just mentioned, there there's actually multiple categories of different fruit that they set rules and um, they provide prizing for. So everything from giant pumpkins, giant squash giant tomato, which today the world record was broken by uh, a gentleman in Walla Walla, Washington. And it, get this, 16.85 pound tomato. A tomato? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's uh, like a, it's crazy. a good size it's a bowling pumpkin. Ball, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, but there's, uh, there's bushel gourds, long gourds, uh, field pumpkin, which is just a regular standard, um, jack-o'-lantern pumpkin. And, uh, they also do what's called the master gardening award. So if, if you can enter successfully five of the, I think it's eight or nine categories that they judge, um, they assess a point total based on how well you did in your region for each of the fruit that you enter. And then, that you amass a point total and they give a master gardening award for that as well. So one of the things that uh, while we have our uh, giantpumpkinsbc.com website, which anyone can go to for seeds and tips on how to grow giant pumpkin and to be put in touch with any of the growers uh, in our group who might live geographically near you. So um, we're all you know more than willing to help people along and mentor people to get into the, they call it a sport of giant pumpkin growing. But we're trying to encourage people who may not have the real estate to grow a giant pumpkin because they do take a, well, not not a considerable amount, but they do take some some, some size of garden to grow. Uh, but uh, to start looking at doing some of the other, what they call extreme gardening uh, items like giant carrots and giant tomatoes and giant onions. And there's a whole bunch of different things that you can grow. Right, which which makes a bit more sense. Like you say, I doubt there's anybody in a high rise that wants their neighbor upstairs trying to grow a seventeen hundred pound pumpkin <laughs> exactly. on the balcony. <laughs> I don't think the strata would be too happy. No, with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to break break some rules. Um, speaking of rules, so you mentioned that this one was grown in a greenhouse. There must be rules, though, aren't there, and regulations on what what's okay and what's perhaps borderline or or onto the category of of cheating a little bit. No, uh, you can throw whatever you want at your pumpkin and all they care about the rules based sound. So as long as there's no rot spots bigger than um, two square inches or any the cavity of the fruit, that would automatically um, disqualify it as a damaged fruit and it doesn't qualify for any uh, prizing. Now, that being said, (laughs) there's a couple of heartbreakers this year. The current world record is by a gentleman named Stefan, uh, Stefan Cotrupi, uh, outside of Florence, Italy. And it was 2,708 pounds. And, uh, there's two brothers in the UK who grown a greenhouse who had this massive pumpkin growing and it 
had a, a literally an inch and a half split on it. So the unofficial, because it won't count for anything, weight on it was 2,908 pounds. So they almost crossed the 3,000 pound barrier now. Um, but but again, it didn't count because there was that split in it. So, But it's funny, uh, there's some people, like I chose to grow all organically. Um, and, um, you know, my, my best was last year was almost, 1200 pounds. So it can be done. Wow. Uh, So final question, I think, what do you do with all of them after the competitions? That's a lot of pumpkin flesh out there. (laughs) Well, there's a number of things that that some growers do. So uh, there's a few uh, pumpkin festivals across North America that uh, we'll host a regatta afterwards. So uh, I'm originally from Maine in the in the U.S. and uh, there's a there's a pumpkin festival there called the Damascotta Pumpkin Festival in Regatta. So they literally will transform these giant pumpkins into boats and race them down um, the uh, Damascotta River. There's one in Tualatin, Oregon, as well that does the same. So that's one of the things. Um, my pumpkin goes to It's About Time Nursery in Burnaby, 7509 Meadow Ave in Burnaby. And um, on the 23rd, we'll be bringing in uh, totem carver uh, Jerry Sheena. He's done it in the past as well uh, to transform the pumpkin. He professional, professional carvers, and they, they, they really do an amazing job. So we'll be out, out there all day on the 23rd. It's The pumpkin is actually at the nursery now, so if anyone wants to drop by and have a look at it, it's there. Uh, And then, again, because I grow organically, after we're done carving it, um, there's a pig farm in Richmond that we bring it out to and feed it to the pigs. All right. So no no piece of the pumpkin wasted. No waste, exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, that is just uh, fascinating. And congratulations on uh, getting the prettiest pumpkin prize. And thank you, Jeff, so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks so much. And again, uh, if anyone's interested in getting into the hobby, giantpumpkinsbc.com, and uh, we'll help you out. All right. Sounds good. Jeff, thanks again. You bet. Cheers.